Well, now that you're thoroughly depressed by that intro video, let's uh, get started here, guys. Hey, my name is Corey. Uh, so glad that you all are here. We actually have been expecting you. This whole series is actually designed uh, around you guys. And so some of you all, this might be your first time in church ever. Uh, some of you all, this might be your first time in church in a long time. Uh, maybe you came because you heard about the series or somebody invited you. We just want you to know that you, you're expected and you're welcomed and you're loved. Thank you for braving the cold and the snow out there and making your way here today. We've actually been in a series called Hope in the Dark, and what we've been doing is taking a, a look at the lessons learned from the prophet Habakkuk. He's actually referred to as the minor prophet, but that's kind of like saying like the junior pastor, all right? It's not that he gives any less significance. It just means that the words that recorded that we have in the Jewish scriptures are actually uh, smaller than some of the major prophets. And so he's a key character. He's an important person, uh, but his name is Habakkuk. Now, most of you guys have probably actually never even heard of this guy. And even if you have, you probably have not read his words. And so what we want to do is we want to give you a little bit of background and understanding of who this guy is. Okay, so his name is Habakkuk. His name literally means uh, to wrestle and embrace, to wrestle and embrace. And over the last couple of weeks, we've actually been wrestling with some subjects that are really pertinent to most of our lives and, and, and to the darknesses that we experience. And if you didn't get a chance to hear the messages the last couple of weeks from both uh, Pastor Aaron and Pastor Patrick, uh, I would encourage you guys to go online. Uh, you can go to our uh, webpage, tracechurch.com backslash watch, and you can catch the, the, the recent series that are on there. It'd be a great way to be able to get a recap. But for those of y'all that have not seen those, let me give you some quick historical context to help catch you up a little bit. All right, Habakkuk, uh, the person and the book, was written in about the 7th century B.C. That's about 600 years before Jesus comes on the scene. And what's happening? at this particular time is that the nation of Israel is being bothered, is being punished, is being invaded by like these surrounding pagan nations. Now, most prophets actually speak to the people on behalf of God. However, Habakkuk is kind of unique in the fact that he actually speaks to God on behalf of the people, and he does so in like a very bold uh, manner. And so what we've seen so far, there's only three chapters in Habakkuk. And so in chapter 1, we see Habakkuk going to God on behalf of the people saying, God, why? Like, what's up with this? Why are you allowing these people to invade us? Why, why is this problem called? Why aren't you doing anything about this? And what we learned from, from Aaron in chapter 1 and the lessons from Habakkuk was this. It's okay to ask the questions. It's okay to wonder. But, but don't walk away from God in your wondering. And then by chapter 2, we actually hear that God has answered Habakkuk's why question, but not the way in which he hoped for or expected. He says, oh, I'm going to tell you why I'm allowing this to happen. Matter of fact, I'm actually sending the nation of Babylon in to like, mess with the people of Israel to punish them because they've been disobedient to me. Not the question at all, not the answer at all that Habakkuk was looking for. And so he shifts his question from why to, to when. All right, when, when is this going to happen, Lord? And when is it going to end? And when are you going to pay these guys back for the evil done to you? your chosen people. And what we learn from chapter 2 is this. In your waiting, don't give up. Don't let go of God when you're waiting. And, and what we've done in the last couple of weeks, we, we've used this common theme, this one thing that's kind of permeated in the first two chapters, and it will continue on into the, into the third one. And this is it. A follower of Jesus can both wrestle with honest questions and still embrace a genuine faith in God. A person who's seeking after Jesus can, can absolutely wrestle with honest questions and still embrace a genuine faith of God. And so in chapter 3, we see a, a subtle shift. You see, at this point, Habakkuk's situation has really not changed. 
He's not gotten the, the answers to the why that he wanted or expected. He's not been given a time frame to the win. But because he didn't walk away and because he didn't let go, he stuck it out long enough that now he has shifted his focus to the who. And that's today's topic. Today, we're going to be looking at worshiping while you wrestle. Worshiping while you wrestle. So let's take a look at what Habakkuk has to say about this in the concluding chapter 3. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up, turn them on to Habakkuk. And uh, we'll just start here in in verse 1. Let's take a look at this. So verse 1, it says, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shijanoth. Okay, right from the beginning, we see it's the same guy speaking. Habakkuk is still the one who's communicating, and he's still talking to, to God on behalf of the people. That's what we see here. But then we see this, this phrase, on Shijanoth, that you guys know what Shijanoth is, right? Yeah, I mean, Shijanoth is the, he's the Hebrew reindeer. <laughs> on Dasher, on Dancer, on Prancer, and Vixen, on Shijanoth, on Donner. See what I did there? Yeah. Come on, guys, get in the Christmas spirit here a little bit. Talking about depressing things today, I need a little humor, all right? So here we go. Uh, but seriously, Shijanoth, like, th- th- why does, wh- what is this put here for? What does that mean? Okay, now scholars much smarter than I am that have researched this much further than I, what they've uh, figured out about Shijanoth is it's actually a musical term denoting how you should approach or sing what you're about to read. So in other words, what Habakkuk does is he just says, hey, I'm getting ready to write this prayer. I'm going to speak this to God, but this is how you should approach this. If I was to say like, hey, approach this like a love song, all right? You know how to do that, right? Or approach this like a, a, a whiny country ballad, uh, you know, that you just broke up with your girlfriend. You would know how to approach that, right? This is what Habakkuk is doing. He's telling you how to approach the words that he's about to speak. And he says to do it on Shijanoth. Now, what we find out about Shijanoth from these people who study this is that Shijanoth means to worship with vigor, to sing with strong emotion, to live with impassioned exuberance, high-spirited praise with vigorous enthusiasm, praise punctuated with exclamation marks. Somebody say on Shijanoth. Very good. All right, so you guys are almost on Shijanoth, all right? We're getting there. But you have to understand, like, this is something where Habakkuk is saying, guys, you all need to, like, like bring it, all right? Bring it. Not just read it, but when you read the words that have just preceded his statements that are going to come in chapter 3, you're going, how in the world? This looks like a divided thing. You've just been wondering, and you've just been waiting, and now you want us to sing on Shijanoth. When we get to this part of Habakkuk, we see that he literally has changed his tune. You see, he's no longer complaining. He's no longer trying to plead his case to God on behalf of the people. He's still living in confusion and ambiguity because his situation hasn't changed. God hasn't done anything to change his circumstances. But nonetheless, he has decidedly altered his approach and his perspective in chapter 3. And I think it's important to keep this in mind as we look at the words that Habakkuk writes. Because these words are not merely concessions. They are declarations meant to be expressed on Sijanoth. Now, guys, no doubt about it, Habakkuk is still in the darkness, all right? Still impending doom coming his way, still being invaded by these pagan nations. All that stuff is still happening. He's in the middle of the darkness. And guess what? We understand him, don't we? Because each and every one of us have been in darkness at some point. Some of you guys might be sitting in some darknesses right now. Everyone has a darkness to endure. A matter of fact, uh, my good friend and our pastor, Aaron, uh, I've heard him say it this way. He says, everybody's got a storm. Everybody's a storm. You're either in one right now, you just came out of one, or you're, go- you're like, one's coming. He's kind of a cynical guy, you know, if you get to know him a little bit. But, but, but the reality is, the, like, the, there are storms that coming, and there are storms that you're enduring, and there are storms that you have been through in your past. We have all experienced dark times. 
As a matter of fact, I've, I've gotten a, the privilege of sitting down alongside of, of, of some of you guys just over the past couple of weeks, just since this series has started, and I've gotten to hear some of the storms, some of the dark places, some of the questions that you guys have been wrestling with. And I just want to share a few of them, just so you understand some of the, the storms people are going through. I sat down with one gal, found out that she was actually in, in, invited here, or at least she was drawn here because of the kindness that somebody showed her, because she's in a situation of living in her car in the middle of all this cold and, and nasty weather. And, and, uh, and so as I got to talking with her, um, her situation hasn't changed. She's still in her car. That's, that's how she's living her life. But that was not the darkness that she was experiencing. The darkness that she was experiencing was actually the fact that she didn't feel like she could follow Jesus and wrestle with him at the same time. She was living in this darkness. It's like, I can't actually have the questions that I have about God because intellectually I'm trying to be honest with this and still be able to pursue Jesus with an honest heart. That's the darkness that she's been living in. I talked with another guy just three weeks ago. His darkness had gotten so bad, so prevalent in his life that the only way he, he could find to get out of his darkness was to attempt to take his life. And so he tried to do that by, by taking a staple gun to his head three times. He's living in darkness. I sat with another guy, and he told me of a story of the fact that when he was five years old, he was, he was molested by uh, a neighbor. And then and later on uh, in his career, he was, he was kind of groomed and then abused by a superior. And then he turns to the church in order to find some healing. Instead, he found judgment. He's living in all kinds of darkness. I talked to a, one of my friends the other day and found out he just lost his job right before the holidays. And his wife is eight weeks pregnant. He's living in some darkness trying to figure out what's next. Going through Dutch Bros, been having a conversation with this gal, and she tells me that her, her mom, who has severe mental illness, had a psychotic break, and all of a sudden, she like kicked her out the day before Thanksgiving. Nowhere to stay, nowhere to celebrate. Now she's trying to figure out what's next for her. She doesn't have a place to stay. She's living in some darkness. I don't know what your darkness is. I don't know what you've been through or what's coming or what you're going through right now, but all of us are sitting in it somewhere. And so the question is, what do we do when we've been wondering and we've been waiting in darkness? How is it possible to sing to God on Shijanath when your situation seems so stinking overwhelming? Let's go back to Habakkuk and see how he came to that conclusion in his own life. Here's what we see in verse 2. It says, Lord, I've heard of your fame, and I stand in awe of your deeds. Lord, repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. Have you ever noticed that when you're going through a hard time, you're in a tough patch, you're in a dark place, that that thing, that situation, that darkness is the only thing that you're able to see? There may be a hundred other good things that are happening all around you, but you don't see those things, right? You see what's right in front of you, which is the darkness, the hardness, the tough thing that you're going through. That, that's somewhat natural because I think that that's actually how darkness works. Whether, whether it's a sin struggle or, or a sickness or a mistake that you made or an unfortunate circumstance, darkness has the same effect. It consumes you. And, and in my experience, at least, uh, darkness competes for my attention and it's not satisfied until I am completely fixated on it, until it's all that I can see. And in a real sense, darkness blinds us. It, it keeps us from being able to see anything outside of our self and our situation. And the more that we look to self and situation, the more we continue just to spiral down into this deeper darkness. And it's harder and harder to be able to see outside of self and situation. But the beginning of worship is taking your eyes off of self and situation. 
That's the beginning. That's where it all starts. If you could take your eyes off of self and situation, that's where it starts. But it actually culminates whenever you're able to take your eyes off of self and situation and you put them on the one who is bigger, who is greater, who is more powerful, who is above all of your darkness and circumstances and situation. That is God. Whenever you're able to put your eyes on him, at that moment you're able to start to rise above your darkness. Maybe not get out of your darkness, but you're able to see outside of it. You see, this is what I think Habakkuk is doing in chapter 3. He has a conversation that goes something like this. I know what you're about to do, God, and I don't completely understand it. But instead of giving my attention to it, I will fix my gaze on you. And then he remembers, he recalls, he recounts. I have heard of your fame, and I stand in awe of your deeds. And he starts to to speak of all these things that he's heard of and the things that he has seen God do, not only in his days, but days before. And he spends the better part of the rest of chapter 3 speaking of these things that God has done because he knows God is bigger than the darkness that he's experiencing at that moment. Now, here's the thing. I I believe truly that one of the best things that we can do when we find ourselves in darkness, first of all, is to call it out. It's like, I'm in a dark spot. I'm not in a good place. I'm, I'm in a hard place. I've got questions. To be honest about those things. But when you find yourself doing that, understand that the natural inclination is to think about self and situation. The very best thing that you can do in that moment is to take your eyes off of yourself and your situation. Put them on some other people. Put them on God. Put them someplace else other than yourself because otherwise you're just going to spiral down. I know it because I've experienced it and you probably have as well. Now, I'm not saying it's easy, Like, that is an incredibly hard thing to do, and I'm not telling you to ignore your situation or sweep it under the rug. But the reality is, is focusing in on yourself and situation, becoming more self-centric, more uh, situation-centric, is not going to help you get out of the darkness that you happen to be in right now. You see, for Habakkuk, he already had a bad situation, and worse things were coming. For him to focus in more on that, for him, he declared, that's not going to be helpful to me. For you, it's the same thing. And so we've got to be able to see outside of ourselves, take your eyes off of self to get out of the darkness. Otherwise, it only makes it worse. Now, here's the deal. Habakkuk's case is already bad, but spoiler alert, like, it doesn't get any better. Chapter 3, like, even though he has a different perspective on life, his situation and circumstances, they actually get worse. Let's take a look at what he does with what gets worse. Let's skip down to uh, verse 16. It says this, I heard, and my heart pounded. Now, that's not the kind of pounding that you have whenever you see somebody that you really like and you're like, oh, I'm going to marry them. You know, That's not the kind of pounding that he's having. here. The kind of pounding that he's having is, is the kind of pounding that you get when you look up into your rearview mirror and you see the police lights flashing behind you because you're 10 miles out over the speed limit in a school zone. Not that that ever has happened to me, but like you all get the point, right? That's the kind of pounding that's happening. Why? Because he knows exactly what's coming. God has already commanded. He's already spoken. It's been bad. It's going to get worse. Babylonians are going to come invade, and they're going to capture, and they're going to take away. It's going to get worse. And then he says this, My lips quivered at the sound, and decay crept in my bones, and my legs trembled. Yet I waited patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation that will invade us. See, Habakkuk is scared, and rightfully so, because what is coming is terrible. It is not good. It is worse. Things have already been bad, but they're going to get worse. And I think I need to say that again, just so you understand the ramifications of what he is about to utter out of his mouth. Habakkuk's situation and the nation of Israel have already experienced a darkness. What they're getting ready to do is go further into the darkness. It is going to get worse. But look at how Habakkuk chooses to respond. In verse 17 and 18, he says, Though the fig tree does not bud, 
and there are no grapes on the vine. Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Though my circumstances don't change, though my situation actually seems to be getting worse, though nothing that I've asked you to do, God, has actually come to fruition, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Before God ever did anything that he wanted him to, Habakkuk praised him. This is praise before the provision. This is praise not for the what, but for the who. This is worshiping while you wrestle. Habakkuk is not ignoring his situation. He's acknowledging his situation, but he's also acknowledging that there's one who exists that is greater than his situation. And he's put his eyes on him. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we've been using this, this bell curve to kind of explain to us what happens when we have this like crisis in life, and it causes us to start wondering and start asking these questions. God, why is this happening? And why are you allowing this to go on? And why is this, you know, and so we start asking these questions, and, and we start to drop into this valley in our life. And oftentimes, we find ourselves waiting in this valley, and it's painful, and it's treacherous, and it's difficult, and we don't like it. And we've been illustrating this with this bell curve. But the reality is, this is just like, this is one phase of our life. I mean, our life is like this, right? I mean, ongoing, up and down. Our, our, our life and our circumstances and our feelings, they're constantly changing, constantly moving. Uh, they're, they're constantly going up and down. We're hitting peaks and valleys all over the place. But when it comes to our, our faith and our joy and our hope and our worship, we actually have the opportunity at some point to actually divert from our life circumstances and allow our worship to remain constant, even though our life is going like this. In valleys and in peaks, it doesn't matter what our life is doing. We have the ability to actually divert and be able to allow our worship to rise above what our life circumstances have given us. See, our worship can remain constant even when life fluctuates. You know, as Aaron and I were brainstorming this message and I started to share that with him, he brought to mind a, a passage, and I never made this connection before, but now that he made this connection, like, I'll never see this passage the same way again. He brought up Proverbs chapter 3. Many of you guys have this on a mug at home or some placard at home. It's something that, like, people know about, but when it actually takes practical application in our life, man, it changes things. And this is what it says. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on, on your own understanding. You know why he has to say this and why it shows up in so many places? Because we need to hear this, right? There's so many situations that we go through that we don't understand. It's like, I don't get this, God. What's going on? Right? But trust in the Lord. Lean not on your own understanding. And in all of your ways, submit to him. In all of your circumstances, in all of your situations, in all of your questions, in all of your darkness, submit to him. And he will make your paths straight. It's not that our life or circumstances change. It's our perspective and our approach to them that changes and allows us to rise above to be able to worship even in the midst of wrestling. But you know what this doesn't say? You know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say submit to him and he will make your situation right or submit to him and uh, he will take you out of your darkness. Submit to him and he'll rescue you from your unfortunate circumstances. You know, I, I believe, and I've seen this happen, and I know that this is true in my own life. We have a very Americanized view, really an old covenant view of, of, of life when it comes to our perception of God and how things should work out. Somewhere along the way, we, we believe that if we have enough faith and we do the right things, then we will be blessed, our circumstances will change, and the fairy tale ending will come. 
That's, somehow we, we've come to this conclusion. But that's not what we see in Habakkuk's life. There's no fairy tale ending to Habakkuk's story. The people that he's speaking to God on behalf of get like destroyed. I mean, it's, it's a bad situation. And the reality is it's probably not the same thing for you. A lot of the situations you found yourself in, the things that you've been pleading with God, the things that you've been arguing with Him about, the things that you have been sitting in darkness for years or maybe even decades with, it's not resolved. It's not gone away. The circumstance is not gone. When we look at Jesus' words in the new commandment, in the new covenant that He gives us, He certainly doesn't promise us that just because we do what is right and have enough faith that we'll be blessed. He says, if you follow me, like you, you got to die to yourself and take up your cross. You're going to suffer. Matter of fact, if, if people have done bad things to me, expect them to do it to you because you're following after me. That's not the story. Everything doesn't wrap up in bows always. And so the question is this, what happens when things don't change? When whys don't get answered? When wins don't actually come? Even though my marriage is still falling apart. Even though my kid has not yet come back to faith. Even though my job situation has not yet changed. Even though I still don't have a place to stay tonight. Even though my cancer has returned again. Even though my depression has not lifted. Yet will I praise the Lord? Even if your situation never changes, is God still worthy of your praise? Now guys, I... I'm getting a little amped up about this, all right? And uh, I'm passionate about this, not because of Habakkuk. I don't care about Habakkuk, all right? It's like, he's a good guy, but like, I care about it because his story is, is part of my story. His story is part of my family's story. I get him. I understand where he's at. I've been in the place of wondering. I've been in the place of waiting. I'm trying to get to the place of worshiping like he is. You see, over 20 years ago, my, my, my wife has been struggling with uh, an illness. She's been living with a mental illness uh, for over 20 years now. And for f- the last 15 years of that, I, I've been walking with her through this debilitating disease that has sometimes taken her to the very darkest places imaginable. Sometimes she, she struggles getting up in the morning and being motivated. Other times she struggles finding a reason to live. This illness is the darkness that we have been living in for the majority of our marriage. Now, guys, don't, don't get me wrong, okay? It's not like we've been living in this constant splate, uh, state of darkness throughout our marriage. We have seasons that are, are much better than other seasons. Matter of fact, we happen to be in one right now, so don't jinx us, okay? But, um, but here's the deal. Like, every time we feel like we've gotten out of it a little bit, man, it, it seems to just kind of draw us back in. And even when we're in a good season, it's like there's this, this, this shadow, this lurking, looming darkness that's waiting to kind of overcome us. And that's where we've been. Now, here's the deal. We've, we've sought a lot of help. Uh, we, we, we sought counseling and, and therapy and, and psychiatry and neurofeedback and naturopaths and medications and all sorts of things. And, and my wife and I would both say that if you're struggling with mental illness, you know somebody is, like, absolutely, you need to find some help, seek some help, do these things. But outside of those things that we've done, we've also turned to God. And we, we've prayed and we've fasted. We even had the elders come and pray and anoint my wife with oil. And we've asked God to take this thing away, to heal my wife. But up to this point, there's not been a spontaneous, complete healing. And we've asked, we've prayed, we've argued, we've pleaded, we've complained, we've cried out, we've shouted, we've bargained, we've begged God to take this thing away, to remove this darkness, but yet... 
We're still in it. And it's in these times where we find ourselves in it that my conversation with God is something like, God, I know what you're capable of. I know what you can do. I've read it in the scriptures. I've seen it with my own eyes. I know that you can take this away. Why aren't you taking my wife out of this darkness? When are you going to take her out of this darkness? The response that I seem to always be getting back from God is this, Corey, if I choose not to heal your wife in the way that you want, or maybe when you want, am I still worthy of your praise? If your circumstance or your situation never changes, if you remain in this illness and this disease and this darkness for the rest of your life, am I still worthy of your worship? I've come to understand that we don't worship God because he likes it or because we feel like it. We worship God because he's the only one worthy of it. Now, I've got to be honest with you. <laughs> when my wife and I are enduring these bouts of depression and despair, neither one of us feels like worshiping God. Is it okay for a pastor to say that? I don't feel like worshiping God when we're in these places of darkness. I don't feel like it. But my feelings don't dictate my worship. And so the question that like, my wife and I just sat down and pondered this past week is, what does it look like for us to worship when we don't feel like it? What, what does that look like for us in these dark places? Because it doesn't look like worship on, on another scale. Typically, it, it looks something like this. We wrote some stuff down. Sometimes it's worship to us is just drawing near to God, not running away, not walking away, not letting go. Just drawing near. Sometimes it's, it's this idea of submitting and surrender. I don't understand, God, but I know that you're bigger, and I know that you have a plan, and I know that, like, I, I, I just, all I can do is surrender. I'm not giving up. I'm not letting go, but I'm throwing my hands up and saying, I cling to you. I hang on to you. Sometimes worship for us looks like embracing God with honesty and transparency and being able to say the things that we truly feel deep down in our, inside of ourselves, even if we don't want to like, communicate those, even though we think that we shouldn't. It, it, it looks like yelling out in the field to God or, or crying in a bed to God. That's worship to us because, because he's big enough to handle our biggest complaints and our frustrations. And I think that sometimes God would prefer that you cuss at him in honesty than to praise him with insincerity. I think he would. Because he wants to know your honest feelings. He wants to know what you're wrestling with because he's big enough for you to wrestle with him and for you to embrace him. He can do that. Sometimes I, I think the strongest form of worship for us, especially in these times of darkness, is not being able to stand with arms lifted high and head raised up and singing at the top of our lungs. But in these places of darkness that we experienced, sometimes it's crumbled up in a ball. And the only thing that we can do is just extend our hand and cling to the hope that we have in Jesus. And I've seen my wife do that. I've seen my wife in these times of, of deep despair with, with nothing tangible that she feels like she can live for be able to reach up and just grab hold of the hope that she has in Jesus. Not because she wants to, not because she feels like it, because she's in a place of despair and she has to be dependent on him. And for me, that's on Shijanath. Being able to 
to wrestle with the deepest, darkest parts of your frustration and your fears and your difficulties and still to be able to reach up and grab hold and say, I'm hanging on, I'm still clinging to Jesus, I'm wrestling with my illness, but I'm holding on to my Savior. That's worshiping while you wrestle. That's faith that worships even when it feels wrong. God, I don't understand. We wrestle. But I trust in you. We embrace. God, I want you to take this away from me. We wrestle. But even if you don't, I will still praise your name. We embrace. God, I don't feel like it right now. We wrestle. But my worship is not dependent upon my feelings. We embrace. And it's in times like these that I, I sometimes feel like Peter in the situation where Jesus is, he says a bunch of these hard things and everybody else is leaving him. And he turns to the disciples and he says, so you guys going to leave me too? You're going to walk away? You're going to give up? You're going to let go? And Peter says, where else would we go? Who else could we go to? You are the words of life. You are my hope. God, I'm upset about my circumstances and I want you to deliver me out of them, but you are still my God and for good reason because sometimes God doesn't deliver us out of the darkness, at least not how we would think or how we would like. Sometimes he leaves us in it. Sometimes he lets us sit in it. But here's the most incredible thing about this God that you guys came here today to hear about. The God that we came here to hear about, he may not deliver you from your darkness, but he joins you in it. You see, we worship Jesus not because he pulls us out of the darkness, but because he's entered into our darkness. God made man who put on flesh, who felt and hurt and was tempted and was abandoned and felt hunger. He's a God that chose to embrace our darkness so that we wouldn't have to feel alone. He's a God who understands our own personal hell that we endure. You see, we all have different darknesses that we sit in. There's no doubt about that. But we have the same hope that sits with us, and his name is Jesus. And if you've never met him, man, we'd love to tell you about him. You know, there's, a, there's an incredible scene from a terrible movie that illustrates this point. It's, it's from a movie called What Dreams May Come. And uh, the character played by Robin Williams has died, and he's gone to heaven, and he's on his own personal heaven. And his wife then dies, but she's in like a different place. And he goes to try to find her because she's in anguish. And, and he goes all the way to hell to find her. And when he finds her there, she's in torment and she's in pain, she's in anguish, and he can't do anything to take her out of it. But he doesn't leave her in it either. What he does in that moment is he actually joins her. And it's by joining her that he saves her. Folks, that's what Jesus has done for us. He's entered into our own personal darkness. And if you think that you're alone, I'm just here to tell you you're not. If you're, you, you think that nobody else understands, I'm telling you that you're not. Jesus understands. He's worthy of our worship because he has not left you nor forsaken you. He has come to the very darkest parts of your life, either the things that you caused to happen on your own or things that have happened to you just by circumstances. And he says, I love you. Regardless of what you have done, you are still mine and I will still pursue you. You are still worth it. You have, you're never too far gone. You can never run far enough away. You can't have too much doubt or too many questions to push him away. He came all the way from the throne of heaven to your own hell to let you know just how much you're loved. And he'll embrace you even though you are wrestling with him.
You see, you can wrestle with your dark and honest questions and still embrace a genuine faith in God. That's why we worship this God in the first place. He doesn't tell us we have to check our brains at the door. He doesn't tell us that we have to stop asking the why questions. He doesn't reprimand us when we say, God, when, or when we're honest with him. He says, bring them to me. I'm big enough. I can handle them. And by the way, in this process, not only am I going to embrace you, but I'm also going to be able to use your story to help other people find me. That's what he's doing with our darkness. You see, we worship Jesus because he's the kind of God that allows us to wrestle with honest questions and embrace a genuine faith in Jesus. And if you've never put your faith in Jesus, you've never said yes to Jesus, and that's something that you would like to do today, or at least like to have the conversation, we would invite you during our response time here in a minute to come over here and have a conversation with us about that. Maybe there's been something sticking in your way. Maybe it's the darkness or a question that you've had that you've never been able to answer. Guys, this is a safe place to have those kind of conversations. But for some of you guys, you've already said yes to Jesus, and maybe, maybe you are outside of your own personal darkness today. Maybe you're not in a place of darkness. Praise the Lord for that in your situation right now. Okay, But if we're going to be like Jesus, as a church, this is what we say. We extend hope when life hurts. And so if you're going to be like Jesus in this regard, if you're going to be a part of this church, I need to ask you a question. Whose darkness are you entering into right now? If you're going to be like our Savior, whose pain are you sitting in? Whose hell are you entering so that hope can be present for them? You see, Jesus is our hope. Whether he chooses to heal your pains, your wounds, your sickness, your marriage, your kids, whether he chooses to heal them in the way that you want to or in the timing that you do, he is still our hope and always will be. But guess what? You are his representatives, and you have the opportunity to extend that same hope when life hurts. So whose darkness are you entering into in the same way that Jesus has entered into ours? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day and an opportunity to be able to share these words and um, share some of our story. It correlates with Habakkuk. I thank you for giving us characters like Habakkuk where we're able to see his life and, and we're able to see the ways in which he interacted with you and you with him. Father, I pray that whatever darkness we happen to find ourselves in today, that we will choose not to fixate our eyes on it. That we will actually choose to worship you in the midst of wrestling with our situation. Lord, I also pray that if anybody in here feels like they are alone, feels like they're abandoned, feels like nobody understands their darkness, that they would open up and have a conversation with somebody today so that they can know that they're not. That there are other people who care about them and are willing to sit with them in the darkness. Not that we have the answers, but we do have the hope. Give us that kind of confidence, Lord. We worship you, even in our wrestling. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.